Let's turn in the scriptures to Peter's second letter. If you're using the black hardcover Bibles that are provided in different parts of the building, this is page 957. Today we're actually beginning the third and final part of a series that began almost 10 months ago. It was throughout the middle of 2022 that we studied 1 Peter, and then through the end of 2022, we studied the Gospel according to Mark, which was, by historical records, it was Mark's written account of the way Peter would verbally answer the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? So we studied 1 Peter and the Gospel according to Mark, which is a written record of Peter's description of the Gospel. And today we begin to study 2 Peter. It'll take us, Lord willing, about four weeks, and I'm actually going to conclude with a fifth message, summarizing the powerful lessons we learn from the life of Peter. But here's how I want to begin today's message. What do you think of reminders? Life is full of reminders. You probably grew up with parents giving you reminders. You need to take a shower. You need to finish your chores. You need to chew with your mouth closed. You need to be home by 10. School was also full of reminders, right? For assignments, upcoming practices, your mail and your email are full of reminders. Save the date. Upcoming sale. Your bill is due. What do you do with all these reminders? Well, life is also full of different strategies for managing reminders. I am a calendar and checklist kind of guy. That's me. Other people use day planners. There are people who have taken classes for day planning. Others use phone alarms. Others use productivity software. I have tried. I just can't get into it. Others use the classic string around the finger. Or especially hip among Gen Z is taking an ink pen and writing all over yourself. I've never gotten into that one either. The worst thing that can happen with reminders is that you have reminders and you still forget the thing they're reminding you of. Forgetting what you're supposed to remember is tragic. It's, it's actually the subject of nightmares. How many of you have ever had a nightmare of being unprepared for something that you should have been prepared for. It is common. It is common throughout this building. You have dreams about forgetting to prepare for a test, forgetting to prepare for a speech, forgetting your anniversary or your spouse's birthday. Life without reminders is something we can't fathom. If you don't pay attention to reminders, bad things happen. Bad grades, you're embarrassed in a bad performance, or you pay fines for overdue bills. 
Life is full of reminders. Forgetting is awful. Why do I start talking about reminders? Because that's where we're going to be for the next four weeks, Lord willing. The second letter of Peter is a letter full of reminders. My four messages around 2 Peter are going to be four reminders. It's because Peter's writing this letter shortly before he dies in the mid-60s, so about 30 to 35 years after the events of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He's about to die, and he's giving Christians the most important reminders for their lives. I want to show you that that's exactly what he's doing by reading our text. Our text for today actually begins in verse 12 of chapter 1. And if you're worried that we're omitting the first 11 verses, just know that we're going to come back to those in the, in the final message. Our text for today is 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21. It's a lot of ones and twos. Peter writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, even though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. You can see from those couple verses that Peter understands he's about to die. We don't know his circumstances in writing the letter, It could be that he's actually writing from prison, though he doesn't mention it. It could be that he's writing from prison. Maybe he's even awaiting execution. Certainly he understood. If you put here next to verse 14, John 21, 18 through 22, Jesus had very clearly made known that Peter would face a tragic death, a death of execution, And when he says, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, he could be referring to a personal revelation that he experienced, but I think he's probably, he's definitely referring to John 21, 18 to 22. Peter continues in verse 15. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, again, I want to stop and I want to point out that we have now seen it three times. Verse 12, I intend always to remind you. Verse 13, I think it's always right to stir you up by way of reminder. And verse 15, I'm going to work hard so that after I die, you will be able to recall what I've said. You get in these couple verses this critical context that Peter is near death and his biggest burden is to remind Christians of things that will carry them through a difficult life. Now here's what we're going to focus on the first thing he reminds of verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his first burden. Don't forget He says, but instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory, in other words, the majestic voice of God uttered this, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, 
for we were with him on that holy mountain. Of course, Peter's big point, starting in verse 16, is we didn't make this stuff up. I saw Jesus. He's referring to the transfiguration that's recorded in three of the Gospels. Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. And that's when Peter was on a mountain with Jesus in central Israel and Jesus was transfigured. It means he changed his appearance. Jesus' face began to radiate with brilliant light. His clothes began to radiate. And what Jesus was doing was giving Peter and the other two disciples who were with him a glimpse of the glory of his majestic return. What his coming in glory would be like. But it's really interesting. We're picking up in verse 19. After reflecting on his personal experience on that mountain, Peter says, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until Jesus comes and you attain perfection, I think is the sense. Peter emphasizes, really interesting, that there is actually something more certain than eyewitness testimony. And that's all of the prophecies that God has spoken in his word. In the Old Testament, that Jesus will gloriously return to earth and righteously govern the world. And he says, you believers, you need to hold on to these promises like you would hold a flashlight if you were trying to take a dangerous hike up a mountain at 1 a.m. You need to pay attention to the promises just like you would hold that flashlight. Your health is at stake. Your life is at stake. And then Peter finishes verse 20. Knowing this first of all, This is why the scriptures are even more confirming than eyewitness testimony. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That word interpretation reveals a desire to creatively reveal something. It wasn't an act of creative writing. (laughs) No. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man because some guy said, you know what, I want to sit down and write something that I want to attribute to God. No scripture was ever written like that. Peter says no, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's reflect on what we just read. Peter knows he's about to die. And his primary burden is that they remember certain things, his readers remember certain things, certain crucial truths for their own stability and their long-term health. In other words, let's be honest about reminders, okay? Peter knows that Christians don't just need to hear things one time, they got it, they're good. Truth Biblical truth, truth about Jesus, is not a been there, done that kind of thing. It's something that we need to be constantly reminded of. We should never get tired of hearing the same message twice. We need continual review. Now, again, I want to park here. This is not the main idea, 
But I just want to reflect on this for a second because I think it's valuable and Lord willing, we'll come back to this in a few weeks when we consider Peter's testimony. What we read in 2 Peter is basically like the, the footnotes of Peter's epitaph. They're the most important truths in his life. They're the things when he knows he's got a couple days left to live. They're the things most precious to him that he wants to communicate to other people. They're the most important truths of life. And I think it's just helpful for us, again, before we get into the main idea of what he's getting at, just to reflect on this context. What are your deathbed burdens? I'm not trying to be morbid, but if we leave here and uh, you get into an accident, you're being rushed to the hospital, and you have consciousness for three hours, what are you saying to the people you love in those three hours? What are your deathbed burdens? When it comes to the time to die, comes for us the time to die, what do we want the people we love to remember most? What, do, what, are, the, what are the memories, the reminders we want them to take with them? One of my teachers put it to me like this, and I think it's helpful for us to realize when we're thinking about verses 12 to 15. We're not actually ready to live until we've determined what we want written on our tombstone. That's how one of my teachers put it to me. We're not actually ready to live until we're ready to die. Because what matters to you when you're dying is what really matters when you're living. And so I think it's just really helpful for us right now. Seriously, think about it throughout this week. Journal it out for yourself. Do it a couple times through this year. What are my deathbed burdens? What are the two or three pages of advice that I would give to the people I love most on my deathbed? I don't think we're actually ready to live until we understand the things we're most passionate about, the things that we're going to be clinging to when we're dying. Now, I want to come back to the main idea. Throughout this entire letter, Peter's main burden is that Christians should always remember the promises of Jesus' return. The, the fact that Jesus is coming again is absolutely certain. Never forget it. That's the main idea of the whole letter. But reminder number one I would word it like this. You must always remember that the Bible isn't fiction. We didn't make up this idea that Jesus is returning to reign as king on this planet. It's not some, in Peter's words, cleverly devised myth, or we might say, well-written fiction. No, this isn't fiction. And Peter says, no matter how hard your life gets, no matter how tough it is to follow Jesus, never forget that the Bible isn't fiction. Now, that's, I think, the main idea of verses 12 through 21, what we read today. But I need to unpack how this works out because Peter grounds his certainty in the Bible's promises of Jesus' second coming. He grounds them in two realities. The first is eyewitness testimony. Verses 16 through 18, 
Peter says, essentially, you can be certain that the promises of Jesus' return are true because I witnessed it. I witnessed the preview of it with my own eyes. Our certainty is based on eyewitness testimony. Now, Peter had witnessed much from Jesus' commanding of demons to leave people to healing of diseases, to raising the dead, to multiplying bread, to calming the sea, to crucifixion and resurrection. And based on Peter's eyewitness experience, he was convinced that Jesus is God's chosen king to rule forever on this planet. But Peter especially mentions the transfiguration, saying, I got to preview what the second coming is going to be like. Wow. Peter knew, based on eyewitness testimony, that Jesus was God's chosen king to reign forever on earth. And we can be certain of those truths as well, secondhand. Court cases all the time are determined by a jury listening to eyewitnesses. Now, they don't always get determined. There can be confusion or things like this. But people's destinies hang on the validity of eyewitness testimony. Peter's eyewitness testimony revealed in 1 Peter, Mark, 2 Peter, it's it's something to give consideration to. Now, this demands that we dig a little deeper. Okay, we're going to dig just a little deeper in this first point into Peter's trustworthiness as an eyewitness. Can you trust that Peter is writing this letter? Well, many people have questions about whether 2 Peter was actually written by Peter, and they give four reasons for it. It's a little small up there. I'm sorry, but I'm going to work through it. The first objection that they have is that the Greek writing style of 2 Peter is very different than the writing style of 1 Peter. The second objection that many people have is that the author refers to himself in 2 Peter as Simeon Peter rather than Peter, like he does in 1 Peter. Thirdly, in 2 Peter which is only about 30 years, allegedly, after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, believers are apparently struggling with a long delay. It doesn't sound like something that you would imagine happening 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the fourth reason that people often give is that throughout the first 300 years of the church, several in the church questioned whether Peter really had written 2 Peter. So many times people say, well, he claimed to be an eyewitness, but how do we even know that this letter was written by Peter? I mean, couldn't it have been written by someone claiming to be Peter? Now, I'm going to spend a little time giving answers to each of these. Just so you know, 2 Peter is actually the most disputed book when it comes to authorship in the entire New Testament. It's the most disputed. 
I think these most significant disputes have fairly simple answers. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one, but we're going to work through all four. The first objection was that the Greek style is so different between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. But I would say the fact that 1 Peter and 2 Peter have, have different writing styles doesn't actually mean much because the same author can write in different styles, especially in different circumstances of life. For example, some of you are familiar with the author R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul wrote his senior thesis on Moby Dick. R.C. Sproul wrote daily devotionals. R.C. Sproul also wrote um, intense academic arguments against Roman Catholic theology. And R.C. Sproul, especially toward the end of his life, wrote children's books. The same author can communicate in different styles. And yet, I think there's even a better reason for these differences, and it says it up here. According to 1 Peter 5.12, Peter suggests that he wrote his first letter through Silas. I think it means that Silas carried the letter. I think it probably also means that Peter dictated the letter to Silas. And Silas, as we know from other parts of Scripture, was a Roman citizen who would have been fluent in Greek. So if Peter is dictating his first letter as a Galilean to a man who is fluent in Greek, Peter's not an original Greek speaker. He would be originally speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, and he would learn Greek as a second or third language. And he's communicating the letter to a Roman audience through a Greek speaker. I would guess that if you've got an amanuensis whose first language is Greek, it's going to come across very different than if Peter, in his second letter, is potentially writing by himself. The second issue, why would you call yourself Peter in the first and Simeon Peter in the second? The answer, again, is fairly simple, and it's related to the first, and that is, if he's dictating through a Greek speaker, Silas is basically thinking something like, everyone knows him as Peter. In the Roman world, he's Peter. But if you're Peter writing this letter on your own in a choppier Greek style, it's not at all surprising that you start with your birth name, your Hebrew name, Simeon. Now, it's really interesting that these two points actually work for the authenticity of the letter as actually being Peter's than against it. Bear with me here. Okay, I know we feel like we're in class. But when we're talking about certainty... And on what your certainty rests, these issues are massive. Did Peter write the letter? Well, just turn this inside out. If you were writing a letter that you wanted to pass off as Peter's, why wouldn't you try to write in the same style and use the same name that he had used? Hmm. Third, could it be possible that people were really struggling with the long delay only 30 years after? The simple answer is absolutely yes. Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 warned that many would say that he's been gone so long he's probably never returning. The master won't come back. And in the earliest of Paul's letters, 
In 1 Thessalonians, especially chapter 5, verse 3, Paul describes some with the same viewpoint, who basically says, he's not coming back, we have nothing to worry about, thinking that his delay is too long, thinking Jesus is not returning. That happened a good decade before Peter writes the second letter. Then the last issue has to do with why so many people questioned it. And I would say, again, there are fairly simple answers to that. In reality, there were many other letters circulating with Peter's name on them in the first two centuries after the apostolic era, and it is no wonder that people were questioning which really is from Peter and which isn't. For example, there was the Gnostic Gospel of Peter that's actually been recovered in the last century, and there was also the Greek Hellenistic Apocalypse of Peter, So if you've got letters from Peter and an apocalypse of Peter and a gospel of Peter, it's no wonder that people 100 years later are saying, do we know for certain that this is Peter's? And I think it's critical to point out that questioning if it's Peter's or or having questions or even having doubts if it's Peter's is not the same as denying it. You don't have early church evidence that people were denying this is Peter's. There were questions about it. So, we've answered the question, did Peter write the letter? And I've given some strong arguments for saying, yeah, I think he did. I think we can deal with the major objections against it. But that even leads another question. So, okay, Peter wrote it. Can we trust what he wrote? Can we trust what he wrote? Okay, so I'll grant you, Peter is the author. There are a lot of authors out there, and I can't trust what they write. How can I trust Peter? The second issue is just one that I can deal with in passing, and I can say, if Peter isn't writing this, I'm sorry, if Peter is writing this, if Peter is writing this, what's driving him? Try to suggest motives. What would drive him to be so humble that in verse 1 of this letter, he says, every Christian has an equal standing with me. Or, in one of the last verses of this letter, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, our beloved brother Paul writes some really hard things. They make me scratch my head, they make other people twist things all up. Why would you write and be so humble in your letter? Or secondly, Why would you write in the first place? I mean, his whole burden in the letter is, I don't want you to be misled. I want you to keep the faith. He warns about false teachers and he never mentions a name. He doesn't ask for money. He's not hoping to, like, advance his position in the church. If, if he's not trustworthy, if he's writing, making this stuff up, I'm just curious. Suggest why. What does he have to gain? Think through motivation. What did he have to gain other than encouraging Christians to be faithful? I think it's helpful to think through these things. I think that there are strong reasons for certainty that Peter, the eyewitness, wrote this letter 
And I think that there are strong reasons for saying Peter is a pretty trustworthy witness who doesn't have self-aggrandizing motivation. But having laid that foundation, I need to move to the second point, and we're not going to spend nearly as much time here, though it probably deserves a lot more. And that is, we can be even more certain that Jesus is coming even more certain than an eyewitness or hearing the testimony of an eyewitness. Peter's second point is that we can be certain that Jesus is returning because of the Bible's written testimony. You see that in verse 19? We have something more certain. And when he says more certain, he's saying than his personal eyewitness experience of the transfiguration. It's not to say that eyewitness experience and biblical testimony are in conflict. It's just that biblical testimony trumps personal experience. Okay? I'm a pastor. I talk with a lot of people with a lot of ideas all the time, every week, every year. And I feel like I should say this about a dozen times. Okay? Scripture trumps experience. Scripture trumps experience. When you experience something, do what all of the apostles of Jesus did and interpret it through the Bible. Don't try to fit the Bible to your personal experience. Peter, the eyewitness, says there is something more certain than my experience, and it's the Bible. Scripture trumps experience. It is more certain than eyewitness testimony. Wow. Let it sink in. Let it guide your life. I find that so many Christians want to do exactly opposite what Peter does here. They put more trust in their personal experience, and in their feelings than they do in the Bible and God's explicit promises. It does not matter whether you feel like Jesus is coming. He's coming because the Bible said it. We've got to get it in the right order. The reason Peter tells us that the Bible's promises are more certain than personal experience is because the Bible's ultimate source is the Holy Spirit. That's the last verse of the passage. The Bible's ultimate source is God the Spirit. Verse 21, Peter says that the Holy Spirit carried along the writers of Scripture as they wrote. Now, Peter's conviction that that's what was happening as the Bible was being written is something that he learned from Jesus and something that is testified to hundreds of times in the Old Testament. I wrote the message of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The burden of the Lord came to me. The men were testifying as they wrote, whether it was Amos or Isaiah or Moses, that they were writing the words of God. Jesus was convinced of it. Peter's convinced of it. It's interesting that Peter uses the word carried along because the same word is used in Acts 27 of a storm actually carrying a ship, which gives a really wonderful, colorful explanation of what's happening as the Bible was being written. 
In other words, let's take someone like, like Isaiah. God was, was leading, providentially leading Isaiah to be born on just the right day, in just the right era. And he was giving him the background and the language facility necessary as he's growing up. And then he's giving Isaiah the right experiences. And he's giving Isaiah the right messages and the right friends so that when it is time for Isaiah to write, everything that Isaiah writes is everything that God wants to be written. It's like wind carrying along a ship. Sometimes people hear this idea of God so sovereignly working in the writing of the scriptures so that every word they pen is God's, and they hear it and they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the Bible's written by men, it can't be perfect because people aren't perfect. And I would acknowledge that the Bible's written by men, and I would fully acknowledge that the Bible's written by imperfect men. But the problem with this view is that it doesn't take into account verse 21. God was carrying them along so that every word they penned was the word God wanted written. An illustration? We've just come through Christmas season and we sing about how Jesus is God incarnate. He is God become man, creator become creature. Jesus is God and man, fully God, fully man. Scripture is both the product of men and of God. It is a fully human composition and fully the revelation of God. It's fully human and fully divine. We come back to the main idea and conclude here. In essence, Peter says... I didn't make this stuff up. He says, we didn't make up what we saw with our own eyes. And even more, we didn't make up all the promises that we read in the Bible. So this is his deathbed reminder number one. You must be absolutely certain that the promises of Jesus are true. Jesus is going to return and he's going to reign forever as God's chosen king on this planet. And the first reason you can be certain of that is because the Bible isn't fiction. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the time we've spent today in your word would galvanize our faith so that we can endure the challenges of life until every promise you've made comes to pass. Lord Jesus, you said not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law until all has been fulfilled. Lord, I pray that we would cling to your promises until our faith is made sight. In Jesus' name, amen.